Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. Today, we talk to Professor Carrie Jewett of University College London in the UK. Professor Jewett is a researcher with a background in fine arts and social science, and her work explores how digital technologies shape interaction and communication. She leads the InTouch project, which investigates the potential for digital touch to play a role in human communication. And as a social scientist, she brings a valuable perspective on the social consequences of a tactile internet. Going through the research work products of InTouch so far, you realize that it's innovative in the way that it combines qualitative social science research with artistic collaboration in a way that each one feeds back on the other and creates a virtuous cycle. And something else that is striking about the work is it's really obvious we'll need to rethink social norms for human interaction in immersive environments. That might sound like it's a given for people in this field, but reviewing the body of work created by InTouch, you just begin to realize the extreme extent to which that's true. Other topics we talk about include fashion and industrial design, child development and parenting, touch in people with dementia and Alzheimer's, the effect of the pandemic on the size of our personal bubbles, and collaboration between humans and robots in industrial settings. So here we go, Professor Carrie Jewett. So it's your Friday afternoon. Do you have anything you're going to get off to this weekend? I don't know. I feel a bit like a snail who's locked in lockdown shell. We're trying to get out. but <laughs> yeah. No, I, I know it's it's weird how quickly you get used to just not being able to do things and that it doesn't cross your mind. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So maybe we could start with telling a little bit about yourself. Well, I've got a funny background, but I think a lot of us have funny backgrounds. So I started off doing fine art, actually. I did a degree in fine art, but it was in the 80s. So fine art became media really easily. Mm. And I moved between doing photography and photographic lithography, then ended up in film, and then ended up in installations and performance, I suppose. And then when that all ended, I started using arts as a way to work with young people. And I started to get much more interested in young people than the arts in a way, because a lot of their issues were around relationships and communication uh, or not being able to manage relationships and communications like in family situations very well. So a lot of them were in care, risk of custody. So the arts were a really useful way of working with people that weren't used to being listened to and weren't used to expressing themselves. And that got me really interested in communication. And that moved me into doing research around how people communicate around complex taboo issues. So I did a lot of work in sexual health and doing direct work around sexual health with young people in the midst of their AIDS pandemic was a particularly full-on experience. It was a meaningful and powerful experience. But after a while, I was like, I've got to get out of frontline work. And I moved sideways with that experience into doing research. And so I learned research on the job and then just got obsessed with methods and how to understand communication. And, and that's kind of what brought me here. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So InTouch is a project that you've been involved with for many years now, and it's focused on digital communication and touch. Yeah. 
So when I became an academic researcher, I've worked, I suppose, all of my career working around how we communicate non-verbally. So the way the body, movement, gaze and gesture are all brought into the way that we communicate and their importance mm. in a range of contexts. And so I've got more and more interested in trying to develop those methodologies and really try and understand how to investigate these hard to access aspects of communication. And as I've been doing that work, the world has been getting more and more digital. And so that's just become part of how we communicate and part of how these modes of expression are stretched and, and remade. And when I finished my last project, which was called Mode, which was really exploring how to develop methods for exploring digital environments. I started to think about touch because I was working with some people in fashion and materiality and touch was so important to them. And I started to try and use my methods to think about touch and explore touch. And they were pretty useless, really. And that led me to think, okay, that's a new area for me to try and understand. And from that, the In Touch project was born, if you like. It's a five-year European Research Commission project. And they're really great projects because they're on the technology ready scale. They want projects from naught to four. You have to have a big idea that you don't really know how to address. Mm -hmm. And it has to be ambitious, but really exploratory at the same time. And so it's really massive. So it's been four years, you have another year, and there's several outputs that you've already made. Can you talk a little bit about what's going to result from all of this? How we're approaching it is um, a colleague said to me, look, it's this really exploratory area. When you map it, you're mapping it like Europe would have been in the 16th century. You'll know where some of the mountains are and some of the capital cities, but it's a great big blur and the boundaries aren't very clear. Mm -hmm. So that kind of set my tone, if you like, was to think, well, where are the mountains in this really confusing landscape that I can orient to? So virtual reality and touch, robotics and touch, biosensing, the ways touch comes into parenting or personal relationships. So I've got mountains and, and areas that I can see that are about particular domains and particular technologies or areas of technology and building a vocabulary and a methodology for exploring that across this landscape. So what will come out of the project will be, I hope, some new methodologies which really attempt to bring social science up to speed with technologists because there's all this amazing stuff going on in the world of technology advancing the boundaries of technological devices around touch and social science often sits in a corner and folds its arms and waits for it to be developed and then goes oh that's not very good is it so our kind of aim is to move beyond this critical stance or to bring the critique in earlier so that we're in a dialogue and we're part of the conversation about design. Something I've read that you said at one point was that you, you hope that industry doesn't make like, obvious mistakes or, or poor implementations. Do you have any examples of something that you've learned that you hope industry will take away from this research? So one of the projects we did was looking at personal touch and personal remote relationships. Mm -hmm. And we ran a series of speculative workshops. And from that, 
is clear. In fact, it's clear across all of our case studies that people want to be able to have the sensorial experiences of touch through the digital. But there's an awful lot of fear around what that might come to be and some key concerns around privacy and around authenticity of touch and also around ownership of touch. And I guess this just stems from our everyday experiences of visual technologies and how they've been developed. So things like, you know, Facebook live streaming and people extending those fears and concerns into what would happen if it was touch related. And what I would say is touch is much more intimate than the visual. Even the most intimate of visuals, touch seems to generate much more fear and anxiety. The ideas around it being digitalized, a touch being recorded and then, for example, being able to be played back when you're not there. So these ideas about ownership of touch, around privacy, about how we authenticate touch, I think are really key. I never thought about feeling awkward about feeling a recorded touch and that feeling somehow inauthentic or uninvited in a way that if you just knew somebody was doing the same thing in real time that you just would accept it as being an interaction. Mm. Today we were interviewing a professor of robotics in Bristol Robotics Lab, Nathan Lepore, and he was showing us a demo online of his tactile sensors So once the tactile sensor has gone over a landscape, it can then play back that texture, that landscape at speed. So I suppose thinking about a human touch and being able to be recorded and repeated and replayed in different contexts raises questions for people about ownership and privacy and authenticity. So what if you're dating someone and we have a device where we can record the touches that we send one another, and then you split up and that person's got that recording, but they like that touch so much. In fact, they prefer it to their new partner. So they're kind of playing it or they share it with their new partner. So people are raising these kinds of concerns. And there's also like sessions that we've done with people. We've shared examples of existing technology, jackets that hug, underwear that you can remotely touch at a distance. And the concern is, you know, how do you know who's touching who and how do you control the touch? But for us, what's more interesting maybe is if we do remotely touch each other, even just in very casual social terms, how does that feed back into the loop of how we touch when we're not online or when we're not digitally mediated? So there's always a conversation between the digital and the non-digital and the boundary between them. So like, analytical and almost imaginary so this question of the feedback i think that is the question for people yeah we're getting into ethics right now which i really do want to talk about but after we do more about in touch because it's interesting to understand better how you think about digital touch communication at a high level like what are the constituent components so i think i've read that you have said that digital touch communication consists of affordance and materiality What do those terms mean to you? One thing that's been interesting for us in the work is to look at how when touch moves online, it's not that the digital's immaterial. Obviously, it's just as material as everything else, but it's differently material. So the ways in which we can touch online, say like in virtual reality, become materially very different. We can do different things. 
so we can stretch in VR you know we can have a sensation of stretching things that aren't stretchable we can have a a sense of like breaking things or not breaking things which are fragile we can handle what we would feel as like emotionally material objects we can handle them in very different ways there's a kind of dissonance or conflict between how we think about the materiality of an object and then how we're engaging with it through mm -hmm. touch online yeah so for us material is is a dimension of what does the touch feel like so in our tactile emoticon case study where we worked with human computer interaction colleagues and a neuroscience colleague to develop a device that could send and receive remote touch in there people talked very much about the materiality of the device so they wanted to be able to feel the sweat of the physicalness of touch but when we're talking about affordances of touch as well it's so much around people's imaginations that they bring to touch so the affordances of touch that happen in our everyday social world the, the ways in which we use touch but also the possibilities of touch how those come into or get reshaped by the digital is an interesting question for us yeah that's really interesting it reminds me i watched a video that you made about a design workshop or a prototyping workshop and you had some people wearing EMG wristbands, so electromyographic wristbands, and then you had people stretching Play-Doh and toffee. Oh, I know what you mean. Yes, sorry. I now know what you yeah. What was it called? It's an exhibition called The Art of Remote Contact. Art of Remote Contact, yeah. Yeah. It's a cool video. And what you had is you had people using haptic technology, but then also object materiality. So you had people stretching Play-Doh or toffee playing with bubble wrap, even you had an interface where you were able to move water by floating your hand over the water. And so it was interesting that you utilized kind of high technology with haptics, which obviously, you know, it can be very complicated to set up and maintain and teach people how to use. And then really low technology with just, you know, objects and shapes that were richly tactile. For me, my first reaction to that is just, how haptic technology is so structured and constrained as compared to the flexibility of real-world touch. How does that work into both digital tactile experience and then communication? So that was a case study, the Art of Remote Contact, that was a collaboration between InTouch and with digital interactive artist studio called Invisible Flock. And in a way, the purpose was to create an experience for the public to come in and explore their narratives and experiences of touch through these objects in different kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And what we were trying to learn as researchers from that is how might we as social scientists work with artists to create environments for touch. Mm -hmm. So some of the original pieces were designed working with people with Alzheimer's in mind, touch is often the last communicative mode that goes for people. Mm. So holding hands can often be the last communicative contact, if you like, between people within their families. And objects are very emotive for people in those stages of dementia. So they actually bring back memories. So a lot of that exhibition was about the power of tactile interaction to bring back memories. So the piece with myobands and therapy putty, what was happening there is we've got people pulling 
therapy putty whilst wearing a band on their wrist which is taking the signals of their muscle movements to do with this straining and pulling this very hard therapy putty, which looks like Play-Doh. And that's triggering these different images on a shared screen that sits between two people pulling their different putties. And together they're creating this image through their touch movements. But really what happens in that exhibit is that people start to exchange memories about all sorts of touching, starting off with like, this reminds me of making noodles, reminds me of making bread, reminds me of knitting, and then start to kind of talk around the stories that come around those very craft or physical-based activities. So through that exhibition, we kind of got out the meanings of touch and, and the affect of touch for people. Hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Something that you've written about is how touch is somehow inaccessible to language and consciousness. It's like this thing that's below your awareness a lot of the time. And when you ask people to articulate what they're feeling or remember tactile sensations, they have trouble explaining it, but they actually do have very strong memories associated with tactility. And it just strikes me because I once, in order to kind of understand it better, I did a Feldenkrais session. Do you know Feldenkrais therapy? This type of therapy where the therapist touches different parts of your body and moves parts of your body to get messages moving again and, and increase your proprioceptive awareness. And I remember having just a flood of emotions and stories come forth as this person was doing the, the therapy session. It wasn't supposed to be psychotherapy at all or talk therapy, but it became that almost organically because the sensation of having my body move just opened the floodgates. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems like that's kind of what was going on there, too. Absolutely. When Sarah Price and I, who's a colleague on In Touch, when we had a project some time ago on museum interaction, we were very interested in how people were touching in the museum. So we did a small study about this particular gallery and how people moved around it. And part of the study was that at the end, we took the families who we were looking at into a side room and they sat down and we interviewed them. And we wanted to ask them about their touch. And they're some of the worst interviews that I've ever done in my career because people couldn't remember. Even though we had images, we could show them video clips of what they'd been doing. They had no narrative around what they'd been doing. They had no real memory about what they'd been doing. And a lot of the literature says this as well. It's just as when we talk, we don't know what we're going to say before it comes out as such. I mean, and we're not always aware of exactly what we've said, but it seems like over the years, people become very attuned to how they talk. We're, we're trained to understand that, but we're not trained to reflect on our touch. Mm. In our virtual reality case study, we've taken a couple of VR experiences, one set in a museum, which has various objects, and one in a climbing environment. And when we did the interviews, we brought some objects with us which related to the VR experience. We brought some of the dinosaurs and some of the climbing clamps and some chalk and different things. And it transformed the interview. Mm. It was amazing. People were much more able to then talk about the feeling of the online experience. So it was an interesting experience. During the project, I've met loads of interesting people, and one of whom is a sensory marketing expert. Mm. And I went on a training course that she did for market research. And 
they train expert panels how to talk about mouthfeel and texture. And so for some elite people, tasters, masseurs, surgeons, they have very specific languages. I think it might also be that they've been trained to attune their attention to touch. It feels Mm -hmm. like for many people, touch sensations just pass over them and through them with no conscious directed attention to it. I mean, I'm sure I was like that at one point, although I'd worked in haptics for so long that I I can, you know, I'm very attuned to what I'm feeling. Yeah. And I don't know what you think, Dave, but I think COVID and the current pandemic has made people attuned to touch in a very negative, very specific kind of way, in a way that perhaps only people who were working in hospitals had before, around hygiene, for example. Mm -hmm. Hygiene and contagion and things like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And on the flip side of that, also the feeling of a desire for touch as well. Yeah. So you talked about artistic collaboration and you've actually worked on toolkits to enable people to express ideas with touch. Can you talk about what is your work on enabling designers look like? Yeah, that's again a collaboration with industrial and user experience design. So we went in not really to develop a toolkit, but we went in just to ask the question, how do novice designers approach designing touch in the realm of the digital? Mm. So that was our question. And So we went in and we developed a new module with the lecturers to focus in on touch. And so we included a couple of user experience design prototyping workshops. And as we looked at the concepts that these novice designers had made, we were really, I suppose, surprised that their view of touch was very limited and that they found it really hard to think and talk about and to kind of move beyond a mobile phone and touches activation. So touch essentially as a button. And it was really difficult for them to move beyond that. And so we started to work to think, well, how could we support that thinking more positively? So we worked with the lecturers to develop a toolkit that tracked the design process that they used and tried to interject more socially and sensory orientated questions to touch. So things like find 10 different textual experiences nearby, or is the touch in your design gendered in any way? So with the gender question, for example, people would say, well, that's ridiculous. Of course it's not. Mm-hmm. And one instance, they were designing the interior of a car. And then someone said, well, but, but do men and women look for different things in the feel of a car? And then they kind of ended up introducing this idea that actually the feel of a car is very important. And what is that feel? And thinking about the feel of seats and the shape of your body. So just trying to inject different questions around touch into that design process. It's cool. And you have a deck of cards with prompts, right? And then you had one that was interesting. You were telling me a story about one of the cards says, touch another human. And it turned out to be highly problematic. What happened there? <laughs> we have one of the cards says, touch another human. And the students were working in groups and they looked at it, put it down on the table and moved on. And then a couple of cards later, one of them said, hey, you know, isn't it funny? We, we had that card and we never said anything about it. and We just put it down. So then they had a conversation about it. And then they started poking each other on the shoulder and like falling about laughing. And that 
started, though, a really useful conversation about ethics. Is it okay? Do I have to ask you if I can touch you? And they're saying, I give you permission to touch me. And so then we got into all the whole issues of ethics, consent, and all the, I suppose, problematics of touching. And it's, it's funny, too, because it's also just an artifact of language, right? If, if the card just said, hold out your hand to handshake the person, you know, there's an implied asking. It's a totally normal human activity. So all of that is all of a sudden contextualized in this way that's non-threatening, right? But somehow these three small words touch another human or are loaded with questions. I just, I wonder how that happened in English and, you know, like why, mm. why such a simple statement wouldn't just be assumed to be benign. I think that's a really interesting question because also for me, what it indicates is that in order to feel safe about touching or comfortable about touching, we need to know the social rules. And in order to know the social rules, we want to have some context put around that. We want to know who's touching us or who are we touching or in what context. And so that card had no context around it. And that's because it was a wild card and it was exactly designed to do that, mm -hmm. blow up whatever's going on or disrupt what's going on. Mm -hmm. But in a way, taking touch into the digital world is a bit like that. We're not quite sure exactly what social norms will happen around touch in the digital world. And then because of that, we usually take all of the social norms in the offline world, because our offline and online worlds are the same, really. We take them all into that space, but we actually don't need to because they're different. So it's that sense of negotiating social norms mm -hmm. in a new relationship to touch becomes very difficult as touch moves into these spaces and we're designing these spaces, it's like, what is creepy? What isn't creepy? What can change? What has to stay the same? And we need these kind of anchors as well when we go into the online world that anchor us to the physical world, but not everybody wants them as well. So it's like this negotiation of touch becomes different. Yeah. And touch is often in touch technology or haptics, you know, oftentimes it's pitched as touch is neglected, touch is in crisis because it's not integrated into digital experiences. But touch is kind of in crisis. If you look at society today, just in the last couple of years, you have Me Too, which is too much touch maybe, and then quarantine, which is too little touch. And so it's almost like touch is pathologized and it's happened very well, maybe gradually at first, but quickly lately. I wonder if we're bringing that pathology to digital touch communication yeah it's interesting to think when has that happened before then so just thinking when has touch been pathologized i'm sure there's different moments in history where this has happened with any form of communication or any form of interaction there's ebbs and flows over time as to when it becomes demonic or <laughs> problematic and yeah. when it's in favor so i think there's always this movement around the um, place of touch. And COVID obviously would have an effect too. And one of the things that you work on too, you added this, I guess, to your project is you track the media's responses to COVID and how that intersects with touch. Could you talk about what you're doing there? Because throughout the project, because it's a socially orientated approach to touch, whenever we've done a big talk somewhere, we've tried to situate it 
in the everyday of touch. And, and the news is a really good way of doing that to kind of think, well, how's it being talked about in the newspapers at the moment? And so we found, you know, headlines of Elton John storming off the stage because a fan jumped up and touched him and uh, other people talking about touch hunger, skin hunger, feeling loneliness and touch. So that's always been there, but just as a very background noise to the media. And what we really noticed was as soon as the UK went into lockdown towards the end of March, that the headlines exploded around touch. The whole question of the place of touch in this remote digital world was coming to the fore and the missing of touch and also concerns about loneliness as for people living alone and not being socially touched. Mm -hmm. So we decided that an interesting way to approach COVID and its impact on touch would be to do a, a long look by looking back to the headlines from the beginning of the project through to probably like spring next year mm -hmm. and just mapping the exponential rise of headlines around touch, but also seeing if the discourses of touch have changed or if it's just the way they're being amplified has changed. Mm. You mentioned isolation. What do you think is the effect of people's life situation on how they're experiencing touch during COVID? Well, I'm just a lay person here talking to you in that sense, because it's not an area of my research, but it's certainly impact for those of us who are lucky enough to live with friends and, and family. Well, I shouldn't say lucky enough, because actually it's, it's great living on your own as well. <laughs> I've also lived on my own, but I don't think I would have liked to live on my own through lockdown. Yeah. So I think the impact's been very different on different people. I do think the lack of touch has exasperated loneliness for people. And I think a lot of that isn't this deep, intimate touch. It's the sense of belonging in a crowd, a sense of belonging in a place, the kinds of incidental touches that we have with one another, just as human beings on the tube or the bus. I mean, sometimes they can be fractious, but sometimes they can be very kind as well. So I think that sense of almost more boundaried, I think it's this boundering of the body, almost like a thickening of the skin, if you like, mm. from the lack of touch that's been isolating effects for some people. Do you happen to be familiar with theory of kinesis? It's this idea that there are spatial bubbles that emanate out from you, right? And so there's like a personal space that's very close around your body and then there's a space around that. I'm not well-versed, but each of the bubbles have different social functions and acceptability of behaviors within them. And as you're talking about the boundary thickening, I'm wondering if an occurrence like this might actually change the shape of those bubbles or the behaviors that occur within them. I'm sure it does. And I know that work from Edward Hall and the ideas around space and production of space in relation to cars and the states and all sorts of things. I do have a very personal experience of this uh, changing bubble that I've found interesting, which was about four years ago, I broke my ankle and I broke it very badly, had to have metal plates put in. And uh, yeah, it's the first time I've ever been in the hospital. It was terrifying. But anyway, when I was walking down the street, people were too near me, but actually they, they were completely normal. It was me, my space of safety, my personal space had grown actually massive. And so I was walking along, <laughs> just feeling everyone was much too near and was going to touch me in this fear. You were in pain? Is that why? Well, no, I wasn't in pain anymore. I was frightened of being touched. So it's very much a psychological fear. Around COVID, I think people's 
personal bubbles might get a bit bigger and that will make this space of touch problematic because we're all coming out of lockdowns differently Mm -hmm. and my space might be a little bit bigger than it should be Mm -hmm. really so as a social scientist what do you think about socializing with robots how like (laughs) (laughs) it's a very big question but i don't think i've ever spoken to a social scientist about that problem before and what pitfalls and opportunities do you see we've taken a different stance on our robotic touch case study because there's quite a lot done on social robots, really. And there's quite a lot of work, you know, from the early work of Sherry Turkle and others on robots in the care sector. So when we really sat down and looked at what kinds of robots are out there and what do we find interesting, we decided, or our researcher, Ned Barker, decided he'd really love to look at robots in industry. So we decided to do this because they used cobots, so collaborative robots used in factories. He's been in a waste recycling factory and in a glass bottle making factory that use robots. And he's gone in as an ethnographer on the picking line for the waste and on the bottle making line for the bottles and explored how people work alongside these robots. And why that's interesting for us is because it's not a direct touch in the way that social robots are. They're not picking anybody up. They're not objects that people are stroking and connecting with in the way that some of the care robots are. Mm -hmm. These are robots that have a more distributed, dispersed effect on how we touch. They're like another actor on that line and they change the touch practices of the people on the line. So both of these are dangerous, dirty and dull jobs. And that's where these robots are coming in. In the bottle factory, which is so hot that you can only stay in certain sectors for like 10 minutes. It's it's very dangerous, very, very uncomfortable work. And the robots come in, they take some of that discomfort away. But they also create different touch practices around them. And so that's what we've been looking at. There's so many projects that you're involved in. Is there anything we haven't talked about yet that you want to get into here? Maybe it's just worth saying something about the In Touch With Baby case study that we did. So that was some um, an interesting project for us because we took this very small device, which is a biosensing device. It's a little sock that sits on a newborn baby's foot, like in the home, not in the hospital context. And it connects to an app on a mobile phone and a base station in in the home. And our researcher, Kirsten Leader Mackley, was really interested in this little device. And so we did some focus groups about parenting and touch with new parents and their babies, which I've never done focus groups with our babies before. That was an experience. And we talked to them about their touch practices because touch, as we've written about in our work is so central to our development as human beings and to our relationships and perhaps more so than ever with a baby it's literally how babies come to be and if they're not touched then they will not develop as babies so this idea of a technological intervention in the parent infant relationship is very very sensitive we explored this little device and looked again at how it 
impacts on the ways that parents and babies touch. So the whole idea of this little device is to stop anxious touching, to put baby to sleep with this little sock on, and then if it wakes up, you can leave it to cry because you can see that its oxygen level's fine, its heart level's fine, and it will notify you if they're not. So it's like an advanced baby monitoring mm-hmm. device, really. And what we saw was that even this really small technology reshapes the landscape of touch between parents and babies in positive ways and in or in ways that the parents found to be positive and ways they found to be negative. Mm. So some parents called it like some weird cyborg robot technology that I don't want. And for others, it became a co-parent. So it was to look at the domestication of technology and also to ask the question, can we explore biosensing as a form of touch? Mm. And that was very interesting to us. Because if we've got this expanded view of touch, not just as being a physical thing, but being a set of practices, then to explore how technology disrupts practices and to then talk about that in the context of a touch technology was challenging and I think ultimately has been very useful. That's really interesting. All right. Well, do you have any things coming up that you want to talk about? We're doing a collaborative workshop at Eurohaptics 2020, mm, cool. which is with Jürgen Steimel, who's a computer scientist working on eye skin at Saarland University in Germany. And what we're trying to do there is explore the multi-touch kit that him and his team have made. And we'll be bringing our designing digital touch kit. And we'll be trying to get the computer scientists and engineers and HCI designers at Eurohaptics to really engage with the sociality and the sensuality of touch. That is something that we're looking forward to. Is the design toolkit available or will it be? We've just gone through a process of iterating the design tool again. We're about to submit a paper on that work. And then in the autumn, in the fall, We'll be developing the design toolkit as a downloadable toolkit with a website, setting out some of the ideas about how it could be used. And we're going to also give it a little Instagram account so that we can follow people's stories of how they're using it. So we're really looking forward to the launch of that, which we think will be around December 2020. I'm so looking forward to that. And do you have any social media info that you want to plug? Yeah, you can find us on Twitter at, at in underscore touch underscore UCL. And we also have on our website, which is intouchdigital.com. We've listed all our case studies with the resource page, which has got all our publications on. And we've also got a Thinking Pieces blog where we have guest editors that come in and write posts for us which spans from a a recent interview with a scholar who's got auditory tactile synesthesia through to sex robots and touch, through to looking at wearables and fashion textiles. So it's very, very broad reaching. So you can see some of the networks that sits around our project. Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to see where In Touch winds up. So thanks again. Oh, thank you. Thanks for inviting us to be part of your podcast, which we're listening to all of your other episodes now. We're we're fans already. Oh, nice. Thank you. (laughs) That's very kind. (laughs) All right. Take care, Carrie. Bye.
Thanks for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.davebirnbaum.com. Beats by Ilya MC. Copyright 2020.